Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, there's some strong language. This is a friendly warning in case there are people nearby who may be offended. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Olusoga and in this episode, I'm joined by a writer, broadcaster and journalist. Her previous jobs include human rights development worker and barrister. She was a correspondent for The Guardian and now she's one of their regular columnists. She joins us here in the Penguin studio to talk about her new book, Brit-ish, which has reached number one in the politics bestseller list on Amazon and made the Sunday Times bestseller list. It's Efra Hirsch. Efra, welcome. Hi, David. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. And you've brought along a number of objects that have influenced your life and your writing. I have, I have. Well, first, let me ask you about British, which Mm -hmm. is subtitled on race, identity and belonging. Could you expand a little bit more by what you mean by the last of those words, belonging? I think that the need to belong to a community or a society is a primeval human need. And in my own personal experience, I had a real struggle identifying the community I felt I should belong with and then finding that sense of belonging. And I think that over time I realised that's actually much more common than I realised for people like me. And when I say people like me, I grew up in Britain as a British person with a mother who came from Ghana in West Africa, a father who is British. And I felt, despite being British and both my parents have British citizenship, I didn't feel that I could fully own my British identity. I felt that my Britishness was somehow qualified and questioned. And I think that triggered a crisis of belonging for me. There wasn't another community that I could easily fit into either. And it's made me start to question why it is that Britishness is seen as an identity that only some people get to fully belong to. And I think there is a big racial story there in the sense that I think for much of my life, Britishness has been perceived as something white. And the further you are away from whiteness, the further away you feel from Britishness. That was certainly my experience. And I grew up in a very affluent, pleasant part of London, Wimbledon. And it was a polite place. I didn't face hostile acts of aggressive racism. It was more a kind of daily experience of people questioning me or pointing out ways in which I was different or not accepting that that was where I was from, even though really it was where I was from. So I set about trying to understand why that has happened. Now, you've addressed some of these issues in your journalism. Why did you feel you needed to and why did you feel you needed to do it now in taking these ideas and writing a full-length book about these issues? You're right. I have addressed a lot of these issues in my journalism. I think my journalism informed the scope of the problem, but it wasn't a platform which I could address the answers I wanted a young person growing up now not to go through what I went through. And I genuinely felt that if a book like this had existed when I was younger, it would have helped me. So in a way, I wrote it for the younger me. And I don't know if every young person growing up with similar circumstances that I did will relate to it. But if one of them does, then in a way it would have worked. And one of the things those young people will be facing is something you faced, which is an ostensibly harmless question but is loaded with complexity, which, where are you from? I really wanted to address this question. And I think my whole book is challenging what we think of, not just in terms of what Britishness is, but also what racism and othering is. 
There's this really common perception that racism is this deliberate prejudicial thing that people do because they're bad. And a lot of people, most people, want to distance themselves from that. The majority of people are not racist and they mean very well and they want this to be a a diverse and fair society. So what I'm trying to communicate in my book is that there are people who do mean well, who have good intentions but nevertheless commit these acts of othering that for a child growing up just loads on them this baggage that they then have to unpick. That's what happened to me. And one of the ways it happened was people constantly asking me what I call in my book, the question. People saying to me, where are you from? And there's nothing wrong with being curious about someone's background. I'm fascinated by heritage and identity and I'm always asking people their stories. But the question... The question, as I describe it, is different because it's something that's demanded of you because you're a person of colour. And when you offer an answer, like in my case, I might say I'm British or I'm from Wimbledon, it's not seen as a satisfactory answer because as a brown person, it's expected that you would reference another country. And people will continue asking you where you're from until you give them that answer. To say that I'm British is not an acceptable answer for me to give. And, you know, the way identity works... We need identities that we believe in, but they also need to be identities that are credible in society. Otherwise, they cease to have meaning. As well as writing this book, you've also recorded an audio book. I have. Let's have a listen to the first extract from that book, read by yourself. In this extract, you give us another example of that comment. Although well-intentioned, you explain how it had a devastating effect on you. The progress we have made is, in some ways, part of the problem. We live, the American academic Eduardo Bonilla Silva has written, in an era of racism without racists. It's an era of colourblind racism, of racism with a smiling face. Compared to what black people in Britain went through up until only two decades ago, being roughed up by the police regularly for no reason, being called nigger and chased down the street by armed teddy boys, it's racism light. It makes it so much easier for people to say these days that they don't see race, hoping perhaps that if they don't dwell on racial difference, then maybe that difference will go away. The problem is, there is still race, and there is still racism. Denying it does not solve the problem. It creates two further problems. First, it assumes that seeing race is something bad, that perhaps to admit to seeing race is to embark on the slippery slope towards racism, Given that most of the prejudice and othering I've experienced in my life has come courtesy of polite, smiling people who claimed not to see race, I know that this is not true. I remember very clearly a warm autumn day, sitting under the breeze of a horse chestnut tree, baked by the long weeks of summer holiday, with my school friends aged 14. One girl looked at me, a slight tone of pity in her voice, and said, Don't worry, F, we don't see you as black. The others concurred. I remember their faces, kind, accommodating, distancing themselves proudly from any possibility that they could be accused of being racist, and at the same time willing to overlook the problem my very existence created. This act of kindness is one of the most traumatic things that has ever happened to me. That was British, written and read by the great F.O. Hirsch. Thank you. At the end of that extract, you talk about your well-meaning friends erasing your identity, if not ignoring your race. Others have highlighted it, specifically to make you feel uncomfortable another. You give examples which include someone in the newsroom saying, you can't get a promotion 
these days unless you're white. What effect do those little digs have upon you? For me, the experience is, is this dual experience of, on the one hand, people downplaying your identity when you want to own it, and then on the other hand, people attacking you for it when they feel threatened by it. And that is something that happens. And again, these are kind of what we often now describe as microaggressions. You know, I've never been called a, a racial term of abuse in the workplace, but I have had people question how I got the job and insinuating that it must have been some kind of positive action scheme on the sly. It's not that we shouldn't have conversations about whether to use positive action to level the playing field or, you know, whether there isn't a valid conversation about the way we recruit. It's the motive with which these things are said. And it does affect you and it affects your confidence. And it's happening in a context where you're often the only person who looks like you in the organisation or in the room. Chiamanda Ngozi Adichie, who's a Nigerian, writes in her novel Americana about her hair. Now, you talk about hair quite a lot in the book as a tool by which people have othered you. It reminds me of that feminist slogan from the early 70s that the personal is political. Why did you focus on the issue of hair? I think black hair is an incredibly important subject. Black women often express themselves through their hair. So the way they wear their hair is often a kind of celebration of their blackness or a way of tapping into kind of ancestral cultural traditions, things like cornrows and braids are, you know, age-old, thousand-year-old ways that women have decorated their hair. There's meaning to the patterns that are used. Afros have become a powerful political symbol, you know, and I think they're so instantly recognisable as part of the civil rights movement or Black is Beautiful eras in history. So there is already um, a very established context in which Black hair is political, but the experience of being a Black woman with Black hair is that it's this kind of target for othering. You know, people do constantly ask if they can touch your hair and they want to know how you did it and did you attach something to it and how does that work? And this is often, again, in the workplace. So it's a professional environment and you're kind of being asked to deconstruct your hairstyle. And I think that it's not that you're not proud of your hair and it's not that there's anything wrong with being curious, but again, it just feeds into this pattern where people kind of make a bit of an exhibit of you. For me... Growing up as the only child who looked like me in my school, in my classroom, in my, the, the streets where I lived, it was one of my first experiences of realising that I was different and that people did not see me as the same as them and that they would touch it and they would make fun of it and they would call me a troll, you know, because before there were DreamWorks movies, trolls were not these really cool things. They were these little plastic keyring toys with day glow hair that stood upright. And they would be like, why doesn't it just kind of lie flat like normal hair? And, you know, for me, it's that. It's that um, European hair is normal and our hair is other. I think that for black women, that is an experience that undermines what people tell you, which is that there's no such thing as race. We're all the same. And, uh, you know, you're imagining it. It's a very physical daily experience of otherness. That idea that this is all your problem, that you're imagining it, that we're living in a post-racial society and you're resisting the good news, you encounter that quite a lot. I do, and I've really gone for that in my book. It's one of my frustrations. When people who have not experienced being the visible minority, being the other, being the person that has to explain themselves or their hair or how they got their job. When people who haven't experienced that tell me that I'm imagining it, it can be very frustrating because 
I understand they haven't experienced it. Um, but it would be, I think this is a fair analogy, me saying to somebody who, for example, comes from a very working class background, maybe grew up on a council estate, maybe went to a school that wasn't a good school and didn't have the same opportunities that I had. For me to say to that person, class doesn't matter. I haven't noticed it being a problem. It's fine. We've completely moved on from class. You know, it's that erasure of somebody else's experience. And that bothers me. It bothers me because I don't think these are problems for people of colour. You know, this isn't my problem to sort out. We all live in this society. These patterns of othering and prejudice and structural disadvantage, we've inherited them. You know, they have a historical basis and they are played out through many deliberate acts as well as unconscious ones. And I think we should all be willing and ready to address that. But it's also a way of just silencing you. It is an act of erasure. You find yourself having to justify your very existence. And that's very exhausting. It can be a difficult thing. And I think a lot of people experience this where they're kind of expected to be a spokesperson as to why these issues matter. And they're expected to persuade people that they matter. It wasn't my idea that we have these categories. I have been born into this world where these exist for reason. And the reason was for the benefit of Europeans who had a particular project when they invented race to exploit people of African heritage. So the idea that now it's no longer convenient to have those categories, we should all just ignore them, it, it's, it troubles me. Your book is in part a memoir and you've brought in some objects to show us how you were inspired to produce this book. How important were your diaries, your old diaries, which is what we have here in front of us, for the development of you as a writer? My diaries have been really fundamental, both to my, I think, skill as a writer, and I'll leave that people to read the book and judge whether or not I have that skill, um, but also to my confidence in having a voice. So I've got one here, it's 1994, so I was 13 when I started writing this, and as you can see, I wrote basically every day, and I stuck pictures of my school friends in, and I wrote about boys that I had a crush on, and it's not very profound. <laughs> if you read it, most of it is kind of teenage drivel, but it got me into the discipline and the habit of collecting my thoughts at the end of every day and analysing them and putting pen to paper. And I think they served a therapeutic process because for me, when I talk about having an identity crisis, it was really real for me. It really destabilised me emotionally as a teenager and I was very unhappy and I was quite turbulent, I think, on this journey to search for who I am and where I belonged. And my diary helped me process that. And then in doing that, it gave me the habit of turning my thoughts into writing. And I think that's been a really important part of my growth in my life and the, the fact that I gravitate so much towards writing and I find that a really good way of expressing myself. And I think it all began with um, these humble diaries. So the one I've got here, it, it's a bit random. It's a French school agenda, like the kind of thing you write your homework in every day. I was in like a supermarket in France when I was 13 on a summer holiday with my parents and I bought it and I started writing in it and I never stopped. And did you draw on the contents, your own memories of this crisis of identity when writing the book? I did. I went through every single one of my diaries to write this book and I've never read back ever before. It was interesting. I loved writing my book. I It was one of the happiest periods of my life, except for this part where I had to read over my old diaries. And that was one of the hardest things I've had to do. There's a lot of pain in my diaries and it was quite hard to confront. And actually, I didn't necessarily like the person I found, especially the teenage person that I found in there. And so I had to kind of learn to be kinder to myself and more forgiving of my teenage self. 
it was good because I documented a lot of the things that I needed to draw on to tell my story in the book. And it was, in a way, it was reassuring that they were there. Well, let's go to another extract from the book. Here, after rereading those diary entries, you discovered what an impact a change of hairstyle had on you. And then I fell into blackness. It happened overnight. It happened by accident. When I was 13, my mother allowed me to get my hair braided, a traditional African hairstyle that involves weaving synthetic extensions into long plaits that, the way I wanted them, fell all the way down my back. Shiva, a Caribbean lady from Tooting who regularly toiled at my mother's head, would do it. I just had to buy the hair. We surveyed the rows of plastic-wrapped hair, woven loosely into one fat plait. My mother knew what to do. She chose acrylic braid extensions, colour 2B, a light brown that matched my natural colour. Two packs was enough, she explained. It took five hours that first time, the Ashanti stool, Shiva and me, her fingers clicking and weaving so fast sometimes it was hard to see them. When she'd finished, she burned the ends with a lighter, rolling the molten plastic into a hard cylinder, like the end of a shoelace. I was transformed. The braids, which were thick and long, made me look older. But more importantly, they made me look blacker. This hairstyle was a cultural marker. It signified to others something the unmanaged frizzy fringe had not. I was a member of their community. I existed. I was there. It's no exaggeration to say that my hair gave me access to black people. Black boys saw me now, a heaving young bud of sexuality, and called out at me in the street. Black girls wanted to fight me, seeing me for the first time as a threat. I felt as though I became a woman overnight. Around that same time, you were telling people that your family was from Jamaica rather than Ghana. And as you say in the book, that's because African countries were unfashionable at that point. (laughs) Were you constantly changing your view of yourself? Yes. In that period in the early mid-90s, there were no references to Africa outside the media, basically, other than the context of the famine in Ethiopia. Band-Aid had been not that long before. The war in Congo, the war in Sierra Leone and Liberia happened not that long after that. So we had lots of images of Africans with amputated limbs, lots of messaging around these crazy dictators, you know, Mobutu, Mugabe, all of these characters who were kind of like psychotic Africans. There was just nothing about it that I felt confident to own, really. And I think it reflects my kind of self-loathing that I tried to distance myself from that. So I used to tell people that my mum was from Jamaica. And that had a totally different response because people thought, well, Bob Marley and weed and reggae and sunshine, which were the connotations, you know, of Caribbean countries. And it was only much later in life when I became the West Africa correspondent for The Guardian in 2011 that I started writing about this because it was then changing and and young British Africans started to be proud of their African heritage. And I realised how widespread this had been. All across Britain, young British Africans had been denying their Africanness or wanting to be more Caribbean because it felt like such an unflattering association. And for me, because I didn't, I'd never been to an African country at that stage and I didn't really know the content of my African heritage either. So it was a relatively easy thing to do to disown it. And when I came to look back, I felt really sad about that and that even someone like me with that personal connection to Africa had been so affected by those kind of prejudicial 
caricature-like images that we often, and I think still, receive in the media in Britain. Let's move on to your next object. You have a picture of that beloved object (laughs) in front of you. Tell us about that. This is a hot water bottle. The reason I included this is because writing my book was quite a challenge because I had a full-time job at Sky News and it was really full-on being a TV editor. You know, you're following the news cycle. You often leave before daybreak and you don't know when you'll come home. Sometimes you don't come home at all because you get sent off on a foreign story. And I have a a daughter. She was quite small then. She was about three when I started that job. And I also was working on my book. So I used to get home around 10 at night and or nine, put her to bed. And then my writing hours were kind of about 11 or midnight to two or three a.m. And it was cold and it was dark and I was tired. And one of the things that kept me going was my hot water bottle. I would just make myself as comfortable as possible and I would sit at that table and I would write. And although it was hard, it was also a kind of way of saving myself, I think, because This was my story and it was what I really cared about. And I felt this really psychological need to have that and cling to it and give it everything I had. So I have this newfound loyalty towards my hot water bottle because I think my book might not have happened without it. And there's one other thing as well. I think that there is this idea about what you can do in life. And there were people who said to me when I was writing my book, get real, women with full-time jobs and small children do not write books. And I think that perception exists. But my experience is that you can overcome what seem like insurmountable hurdles if you really care about something. And so I also wanted to encourage all the other people, not just women, but I think for working women who are mothers, it's probably triply hard. But, you know, anyone who feels like they need to do something or put something out there or tell their story, you've got to persist. No one can take that away from you. And I read that your grandfather also had a relationship with temperature-controlled water when he was doing his work. (laughs) Can you tell us about that? So in my family growing up, we were told as children about my grandfather. He died before I was born, sadly, so I never knew him, but he had this kind of legendary status. P.K. Owusu is his name. And he came from a pretty ordinary rural family, not well-off, small-scale farmers. And he went to an ordinary school. He was one of the lucky few in the Gold Coast as a colony, what Ghana is now. There are very few... African children who did get the chance to go to school, but it was a pretty standard school that he went to. But he did well at school and he was very determined. And as a result of that, he got a scholarship to Cambridge that the British in those days gave a handful of Africans from every colony a scholarship to Oxbridge so that they could then come back and be part of the colonial administration. But the children in my family were told that my grandfather, sitting at night, you know, they didn't have electric lamps and there were lots of mosquitoes and he got malaria periodically. But when he was feeling tired, he would just get a bucket of cold water and put his feet in them. And that's how he stayed awake working. So when I was growing up and I used to complain about doing my homework, my mother would repeat that story. You have no idea how lucky you are. And so sometimes when I was sitting there with my hot water bottle, I did think about my grandfather, partly because I was writing about him at times as well. You talk about your links to Ghana and Ghana's links to the UK. Now, your husband, Sam... He grew up in Tottenham, but he's also from a Ghanaian family, but with a very different upbringing in the UK, one marred by poverty. Did he have a very different perspective on identity as a result of that upbringing? A completely different perspective on identity. So for him, growing up, his kind of primary concerns were survival, because it was a violent area and he was a young man in the street where, you know, there were lots of violent young men and, and not 
enough adults supervising or providing activities for young people. He didn't have enough food. He didn't have warm enough clothes. You know, he had a lot of really physical, urgent struggles to survive. I had a very privileged upbringing compared to him. But in terms of identity, I felt very impoverished because I didn't have access to a community. I didn't really understand where I was from. Whereas he had this kind of luxurious experience of knowing exactly where he was from, having a completely cohesive sense of identity, a tangibly identifiable community that he belonged to. And he looks like them and he speaks like them and he totally understands how to blend in and behave. His sense of identity is such that he's never really had to think about it because it comes so easily to him. Let's move on to your next object, which is contained within the book in front of you, which is poetry. I'm not sure whether poems can be objects, well, it's but they can book. be artefacts. It's a book, and the book, as you rightly point out, is not beautiful. I think this is an accounting ledger from the 80s, and I never really thought about that until I saw one in Ghana, I think, like pre-digital era. This is how people kept their accounts. And my dad, I must have just raided one of these from his office when I was a little girl. And I was really little because the first entry here... I was so little I didn't even put the year. I just said 26th of May, but I think it's 1987. And there's a poem called When I Was Six and one called My Little Line. And they're all these kind of six-line poems that I wrote when I was six or seven years old. This was buried in a box somewhere in my... When I dug it out, I really realised that I have been someone who has been yearning to express myself and the world that I see in written form from a very young age. And now that I'm a mother myself, I kind of appreciate that more because I see in my daughter that she also has these things that she very clearly wants to do with herself and you know you wonder where that comes from and I'm not from a family of writers particularly so I guess I appreciate it more now. One area that you address in the book is history, is our collective amnesia about the role that black people have played in British history. So can we hear another extract from your audiobook, which is about the forgotten abolitionists? Equiano, author of An Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olade Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa, the African, published in 1789, was perhaps the best-known black abolitionist of his time. An Interesting Narrative is now acknowledged its original fame having been almost completely forgotten for more than a century, as the most important single literary contribution to the campaign for abolition. It details his remarkable life story, born in what is now Nigeria, kidnapped age 11, enslaved in Virginia, taken to England while still a child, transported back across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, where he was finally able to save enough money to purchase his freedom, before travelling around the world, narrowly avoiding re-enslavement, and finding his calling in the abolition movement gaining momentum in London. Equiano and Otuba Kuguano, another former slave originally from Ghana, together founded the world's first Pan-African organisation, Sons of Africa, in 1787. Sons of Africa was dedicated to securing an end to the slave trade. But unlike other abolitionists, for these men it was not a pastime, but a calling inspired by their own survival instincts. It was pan-African because, as one scholar puts it, they organised alongside other Africans, irrespective of their region or country of origin, to solve a common problem. They realised that theirs were shared destinies, their fates bound together, and that by joining forces they were more likely to change the fate of other Africans. As you read about an enormous figure like Equiano, who was extremely famous during his own lifetime... 
Did it surprise you that there was ever a time when his story wasn't known and that he was written out of this history? I found it absolutely shocking that I'd spent most of my life having never heard of this man. And for somebody like me, I think that would have made such a difference growing up because I inherited this idea that abolition was something that William Wilberforce and other generous white men gave these wretched Africans who were these passive victims with no voice and no agency. And it fed into what I was talking about earlier, this idea of Africans being kind of either brutalists or victims. And I didn't know about Africans who were writing, using their written words to lobby and being activists and changing history through their own work. And not just that, but what I found so appealing about the story of the Sons of Africa was the identity, the fact that they created an organisation and they named it Sons of Africa and they owned their identity as British people who were also African. That really spoke to me in a very direct and personal way. And I thought... I had no idea there was a precedent for this in 18th century England. And why didn't I know that? And why are children still growing up not knowing about that? If you'd known about people like Equiano when you were the little girl writing this diary, Mm. what difference might it have made to you? I think it would have given me a confidence and a context. People kind of talk about the Windrush and they talk about the mass migration in the post-war period. And I think it feeds this idea that Britain was completely white. And then, you know, in the 1950s, all these black and Asian people arrived en masse in one go. And now we're multiracial. And, you know, that is so far from the truth. And as your work's shown, you know, there have been black people here for millennia, in fact, I think that would have given me a sense that there is a history that people like me have been able to actually make a change to impact and influence the political establishment. At the time I was working on this book, I was the social affairs editor at Sky News in Westminster. So I was in the area that these men lived and worked. And it was quite a personal experience to think there are people like me here 300 years ago being active and changing something as fundamental to Britain as its transatlantic slave trade. That gave me a sense of empowerment that I wish I could have harnessed earlier on in my life. One of the other centres of establishment power that you've spent time in is Oxford University, where you studied PPE, philosophy, politics and economics. We've been drawn into a big debate in this country about Oxford University, about its links to famous slave owners and to Cecil Rhodes. What's your relationship to these issues and your work? Seeing the way that students now are activists and are mobilising technology and kind of global communities to just make their voice heard about figures like Rhodes is real progress. Because when I was an undergraduate, I did a paper on African decolonisation and the only place you could access books about West Africa were in a building called Rhodes House. So forget the statues, the whole house named after Rhodes. And there was a huge bust of him in the hallway. And I remember thinking this is really wrong. Why am I kind of worshipping at the Shrine of Rhodes just to do my work, ironically, on decolonising Africa? I think the question of statues, people underestimate it and they think that this is a kind of quite academic, you know, all these snowflake students who just need something to protest about. For me, growing up in this country, again, I've just talked about not knowing the history of people like me who were able to influence the establishment. I also didn't see people who looked like me commemorated in public spaces. There was no sense that we had a history here, that we had done things that were worthy of commemorating, that we'd made a contribution to this country. And so, you know, these things all combine and it does affect your sense of confidence. And for me, the most pernicious legacy of empire was not just the boundaries that it created and the poverty that it's left, but 
the psychological colonization that people have internalized this idea that they are inferior. And the question of who is on a statue and who is not on a statue are part of that for me. To bring us right up to date, in this final extract of British, you talk about how children learn black history right now, today. My daughter's generation is likely to learn more about slavery and Britain's role in it than my generation did, at least from mainstream sources. If they don't learn about it at school, they will find films like 12 Years a Slave and Birth of a Nation being made by Hollywood studios and TV programmes like David Olushoga's Black and British, A Forgotten History, a 2016 BBC series that probed the untold history of slavery. The British context is important because it relates directly to Britain's past in a way that the actions of British planters in North and South America and the Caribbean do not. Because it was not just the British royal family, aristocracy and banking and industrial classes who grew rich from slavery, fueling the Industrial Revolution, the railways and other key parts of the physical and financial infrastructure that continue to serve us today. Preparing a vessel for a slave voyage, as Olushoga has shown, was complex and expensive. The average cost of fitting one out to carry hundreds of humans in the currency of 1790 was about £10,000. That's more than half a million pounds today. The cost was usually shared by anyone who wanted to invest, and frequently it was ordinary middle and working class people who ventured their savings, bakers, grocers, humble workers in cities like Bristol, Liverpool and London, who shared the risk and the returns. There's no easy defence of ignorance as to what was involved in the investment. It was said that Liverpool and other cities like it were always alerted to the arrival of a slave ship as it was preceded by the smell of vomit, urine, faeces and sweat. Yet as a nation, we are so desperate to forget. People somehow seem to not want to look at this particular time in history, said Steve McQueen, the black British Turner Prize winning artist and Oscar winning director of 12 Years a Slave. I mean, the Second World War lasted five years and there are hundreds and hundreds of films about the Second World War and the Holocaust. Slavery lasted 400 years and there are less than 20 films. Growing up, when you did, there were even fewer films to learn about black history. These days we've got more and more media and more outlets, but most of the stories are still set in the United States, a country based heavily on the plantation economy of the South. Where were the films about Britain's slave trade and Britain's role in slavery and the sugar business? We don't tell those stories well enough and we regard it as a kind of niche thing instead of it being accepted that this is mainstream history, this is Britain's story. And you can't learn the lessons from history unless you acknowledge them. You know, And I've just come back from Germany, as you know, where I was looking at Germany's relationship with the Second World War and the Holocaust. And it's interesting there that they have all of these very prominent memorials in Berlin to the victims. But there's nothing about the perpetrators. And I think that's the more painful story. How did ordinary people contribute to this? How did an ordinary, usually morally upstanding German person find themselves complicit, either in disowning their Jewish friends or turning a blind eye or working in a concentration camp? And it was all of those acts of complicity that allowed this to happen. And it's a similar question that Britain needs to ask itself. What was it about British people that allowed them to see those ships or smell those ships arriving and think, I'll invest in the next one? You know, And I think those questions are really important because 
because humanity is capable of terrible debts. And the only way you prevent that is by understanding it and really engaging with the difficult questions it raises. So we have a British director making an American film about American racism. But any chance you think of a British roots anytime soon? We definitely need one. And I think that we still have this reluctance that makes me hesitant to say I can see it. And I think there is this this narrative British people repeat that, you know, our role in slavery is not so bad because we abolished it, whereas they didn't and we abolished it before they did. And there's always this excuse as to why we don't need to look at our own past. So I don't think that's sustainable. And that gives me hope because there are more and more British people who are directly connected to this history, who are starting to get hold of a platform to challenge it. And I think one day people are going to look back and ask in wonder how we allowed these stories to go untold for so long. Well, let's go to your final object, which is a novel, Cry the Beloved Country. Why this novel? This novel was the beginning of my awakening on questions of race and identity. My mother gave it to me when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And it's written by Alan Patton, who's a white English pastor who was in South Africa for many years. And it's the most beautiful novel. It's written in a very kind of biblical style of very simple poetic prose. And it tells the story really of the pain of apartheid South Africa. And it really touched me because I hadn't known about apartheid. And this was something that existed at the time. And it triggered a far greater intellectual and personal interest in the kind of racial injustice that existed and still exists around the world. So that book really resonated with me just as a piece of literature, but it also opened a world that I had been blissfully unaware of growing up in Wimbledon. And, you know, my family, my African black mother is married to my white British father and they're very happy together and still have a very happy relationship. A relationship that would have been illegal in apartheid South Africa. And, and that's probably one of the reasons that this affected me so profoundly, the idea that somebody like me, had I existed, would have been illegal. And actually, it's interesting reading um, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. You know, he writes about being born a crime. You know, the fact of his existence is a criminal offence. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And so that had a very profound effect on me. And I think from that moment, I never stopped. That was the moment which I started seeking out more books like this and, and more information and writing about it. So it was uh, it was a big moment in my consciousness and and that's probably one of the reasons that I really wanted to write this book because I personally understand how books can change your perspective and set you on a path and if more people get set on that path one of them might help change things so there's a purpose to the writing. F we're almost out of time just to remind you can follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects that we've chatted about today. But before we go, Afwa, what's next for you? What are you up to? I would really like to write another book, and I plan to, but the question is what kind of book is it going to be? So you have to watch this space. And I'm still writing my column in The Guardian, and I do a lot of TV debates about questions of identity and culture and immigration and social justice, and it can be quite quite hard and quite confrontational. But I think on balance, I believe it's good for my voice to be in there, although sometimes I question that. And I'm touring all over Britain and actually quite a lot of the world talking and promoting my book. So I hope some of the people listening will get a chance to come to one of my events. That'd be great. So you're very busy. 
not quite time to get the hot water bottle out again to start another book, but maybe soon. I really hope that my next book could be written under slightly less adverse circumstances. Although, um, you know, maybe that's how you write a successful book. Maybe it has to be hard. I don't know. I'm yet to experience the life of having time to write in a kind of orchestrated, structured way. But I love the idea of that. F word. Thank you. And goodbye. Thank you, David. What is it like to feel you always have to be an ambassador for your race? How does it feel to always tick other? Bringing together 21 exciting minority ethnic voices emerging in Britain today, The Good Immigrant explores why immigrants come to the UK, why they stay, and what it means to be other in a country that doesn't seem to want you, doesn't truly accept you, however many generations you've been here, but still needs you for its diversity monitoring forms. So here's my experience of growing up in Britain. It was always a case of making sure that I was grateful. Maybe that wasn't such a bad attitude to have. After all, my parents were brought to the UK as refugees, fleeing the hyper-violent regime of Idi Amin, and so there was no question that they had been given a second chance at life. At the time of their departure, Amin was busily wiping out anyone who might represent a future threat to his rule. And my parents, then attendees of two of the best schools in Uganda, were firmly within his target demographic. And so they came to West Drayton, and a few years later I turned up, the eldest son of two doctors, with an eagerness to please their adopted country. I didn't notice that eagerness until I was eleven, when I was given a bursary to attend Sunningdale, a boys' prep school. Until that point, I hadn't given much thought to my skin colour, since everywhere I'd studied before had been racially diverse. Now, though, I was one of two black pupils out of 130. What's more, my new peers and their families weren't like the white people I'd met before, whose lives are reassuringly every day and who generally only owned the one home. My new classmates seemed to have the most glamorous of existences. Many of them lived abroad. Their holidays were spent skiing and shooting. One had a butler. The richest ones were always the most shabbily dressed. If a boy had holes in his sweater, he was more likely than not to be descended from some emperor. Following the overthrow of Idi Amin in 1981, my father returned to Uganda to help build what he believed would be a better country. He became the military physician for Major General Oyite Ajok, the commander who defeated Amin, and he died with him. The Good Immigrant, edited by Nikesh Shukla, features stories and essays written and narrated by Nish Kumar, Rennie Edo Lodge, Riz Ahmed, Sabrina Mafuz, and many more, and is available to download now from all audiobook retailers.